This is Downtown, the podcast. Welcome in, Rich Kimball, Carrie Haskell here from our Zone Radio studios on Broadway in Bangor, episode five of the podcast, which is brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength, and by Nice Brewing Company, German-style beer from the woods of Maine. Some music talk on this week's edition of the podcast. First of all, we'll talk with acclaimed music journalist Robert Hilburn longtime critic of the L.A. Times and the author of a terrific new book entitled Paul Simon, The Life. It's a remarkable book, and it's the first time that Paul Simon has cooperated on a biography. And so insight from not only Simon, but uh, well over 100 people close to him uh, over the course of the last 60 or 70 years. It's a fascinating read and a Robert Hilburn with some great insight. Now, that's coming up here on the podcast and We'll talk with Fenway Park organist Josh Cantor, who for more than 15 years has been adding to the experience of being at Fenway Park with uh, well-chosen nuggets of songs, tidbits, always uh, very subtly weaving in commentary and a story, responding to requests as well. A uh, very talented and a very humble guy, as we'll find out in our conversation here on Downtown the Podcast. First of all, uh, let's begin with music journalist Robert Hilburn. He's the author of the book, Johnny Cash, The Life, and the brand new book, Paul Simon, The Life. It's a fascinating look, not only at Simon from a uh, biographical standpoint, but a lot of information on the process of songwriting as well. Here's our conversation with author Robert Hilbert. You've known Paul Simon for many, many years. A lot of people have written about him. This is the first time that he's cooperated in that effort, and you had uh, over 100 hours of interviews with him. What was the hook to get him to be a part of this project? Well, I think uh, I think he just finally felt I mean, it took me a long time to talk him into it. He, he, wasn't, he didn't jump at the chance because he had turned down so many chances uh, to do this, or at least people to you know do interviews for this. And I said, Paul, if you don't do a book, people are going to keep doing books about you. It's going to have false things in it. You ought to do a book that you explain your life as fully as you can and talk about your songwriting. That was the thing I really tried to impress on him. Let's talk about your artistry, how it comes about. How you, Let's talk about some of these songs. And he was much more interested, Rich, talking about the songs. He felt more comfortable than talking about himself. And it took a long time to get him to open up to where he talked as eloquently about his personal life as he did the songs, but he finally did it. And that, I was really delighted when he did speak so eloquently about both sides of his life. You were able to get him to give you a complete creative control on this, but I understand uh, that almost came apart on the issue of uh, your desire to talk with his girlfriend in England back in the 60s, Kathy Chitty. Well, yes, that was an important thing. Some people have been suspicious, especially music writers. If you talk to somebody for that long, you know, it, it originally was going to be 60 hours. It went up to 100 hours. Uh, you're going to sacrifice some objectivity. But I was an experienced reporter before I was ever a music critic, and I knew how to separate the two. I'm not saying there's something in the book somewhere that might give Paul's side more than uh, a person might normally do, but I think it's very little because I wanted to present an objective book, and he did too. And early on, uh, uh, I was nervous, though, because I didn't know whether he would change his mind, because he was known as kind of a control freak in the recording studio. So we were going to London, and he said, 
here's some people, Bob, you ought to talk to. Some of these people aren't going to like me, but you ought to talk to them because they know my story there. And he said, but one person is off limits. That's Kathy Chitty, who was his first love. He wrote Homer Bound about her. He wrote Kathy's uh, song about her. And she's never talked to anybody about their relationship. And Paul has never talked about the relationship either. And uh, I sent a note back to him saying, Paul, I understand your feelings about Kathy, but nobody can be off limits. If I can find her, you don't, I'm not saying you have to help me find her, but if I find her and talk to her and she wants to talk, it has to be in the book. Otherwise, it's going to be compromised. And I waited about you know, a minute or so because I was sending that in an email, and I got back which two words. I understand. <laughs> and from on, I was really relieved that he was going to be he lived up to his word of not trying to control the content. We're talking with Robert Hilburn here on Downtown. And Bob, the book is fantastic, but to me, and, and the biographical information is great and, and sheds some light, but what really makes this book stand out to me is the insight it provides into the creative process of one of the great songwriters of all time in popular music. Yeah, that was my, my sub-theme, Rich. When I decided to write a book about after Johnny Cash, uh, I my, my favorite topic probably, or my favorite aspect of music as when I was a music critic was um, songwriting and I once did an interview with Bob Dylan that lasted nine hours if you can believe it in Amsterdam where we weren't I said Bob we're not talking about your personal life at all just tell me about how you write songs and that was kind of an inspiration for doing this book who could I do a book with talking about songwriting at someone who was at the highest level for the longest period of time and no one has written as long, high as high quality songs as long as Paul Simon did. You can take his work from the 2000s, a song like Questions for the Angels, and it really stands up to his best work. So that was my goal, getting to explain how you write a song, how artistry comes about, and that's a very complicated process, and then, equally important, how you protect that artistry against distractions such as fame, which can be distract, can, can destroy artistry, uh, wealth, divorce, drugs, Fear of failure, all those things that contribute to limiting artists from being productive for a number of years. But Simon resisted all of that and continued to, to be productive. His songs, as he says in the book, often start with rhythm, often start with a sound, and that leads to a feeling. And then quite often the story of the song develops on its own or at least out of the ether, and he can't always pinpoint where that inspiration comes from. Yeah, that's that's the key thing. You know, if I wrote a, if you and I wrote, sat down and said, let's write a song, I think the first question we'd ask each other is, well, what's it going to be about? You know, what do you want to write about? Heartbreak? We want about happy days, going to the bar at night, traveling somewhere. But he doesn't do that. He sits and plays on guitar or piano um, uh, uh, notes. And at some point, those notes will strike him as evocative. Then he says, okay, what am I saying in those notes? How can I say in words what I'm feeling? And then he takes it one line at a time, and he discovers the theme as he goes through. And in the book, he talks about Sound of Silence. He didn't know what he was writing about when he started that song. Graceland, he didn't know what he was writing about, but it comes to him in the middle of the song or at some point in the song, and that's that you, you just his subconscious is what's working, and he feels you can get better ideas from your subconscious than you can by sitting down and planning, oh, okay, I'm going to write a song about this, because that limits your imagination in the song. Yeah, I thought it was very interesting that Kodachrome, originally uh, the words that fit that melody, were going home. And even something as simple as the choice 
uh, of which guitar to write about in Graceland. I think it was three tries before he settled on national guitar because of the double meaning. Yeah, that's, I mean, he's, I mean, the, the, the impressive thing, the hard thing to do when you're writing a book about someone like this, uh, Rich, is, is not to be too flattering, not to be too awed by him, because these are great artists. We're talking about, you know, Lynn McCartney or, or Dylan or Springsteen or someone like that. They're great artists, Bono, uh, and, and you're in their presence, and they, they really think about these things much more than you ever imagine they do. Uh, and you know, picking the individual words that they use in a song and using national guitar to have a sense of national unity. And also there is a national guitar, and he uses that sound in the in the record. So it's being so specific. He could have said just any old guitar, and a listener wouldn't have cared, but he makes it so much better by, by finding just the right word. I think my favorite story about the song creation was one of my favorite songs and one of his recent tunes, uh, Darling Lorraine, and how... He himself was surprised when he realized the fate of Lorraine as the song developed. Yeah, that's fantastic. You know, the funny thing is, when I started writing the book, Paul, again, always wanted to talk about the songs. Let's talk about the songs. And he'd get very complicated, and I'm not a musician. I can't read notes. And he would start using notes and stuff, and I kind of resisted that. And back in the times, I would always try to avoid being too complicated so a listener wouldn't understand. But as we spent more and more and more time talking about the songs, I gradually, as the book goes, let him get more and more complicated because I think the reader gets hooked early on about his songwriting. And I think even if they don't know notes he's talking about, they can see the complexity of what he's talking about. And I love Darling Rain. That's one of the things that he's doing an album now that'll probably come out in the fall where he takes 10 or 11 of his old songs that were not hits and he redoes them. And it's because he wants to give them a different, a second chance at being heard. And that's one of them, Darling Lorraine. And I just love that song. It's, it, but, you know, sometimes songs are pop hits, Richard. They're, they're just Kodachrome, just can't miss. But Darling Lorraine's a little more complicated than that. It's not, it doesn't jump out at you. You don't sit in a jukebox, probably put a nickel under a dime or a quarter or whatever it is today, uh, to hear that song. But it's such a beautiful song. And it's, uh, it's certainly not one of my ten favorite Paul Simon songs. And that'll be on that album. As you point out in the book, Bob, uh, he struggled a long time trying to make it as a songwriter after the initial success of Hey Schoolgirl. How much uh, was learning about the business and learning about music and learning a work ethic from his father, Lou, how did that enable him to not only become successful, but, but maybe lead to what he's doing today and the fact that, as you point out, he's almost unique among his peers to still be coming up with top flight material after six plus decades? Yeah, the New Yorker had an interesting essay two or three years ago saying that he, of all the songwriters from the 60s and early 70s, he's the one who's doing the best work in the 2000s. And his father, the lesson he got from his father, who was a bass player, but not a very successful one, he, was kind of a, he had a band and they played bar mitzvahs and a few television shows, but not a big star by any means, kept saying, Paul, you never master the music. Respect the music. You've got to keep getting better. You can never settle. And that's the lesson he learned. He has never... He, that's the reason he left Simon and Garfunkel. He was tired in 1970 of writing that kind of song. He only knew three chords. He wanted to learn more about classical music and jazz and Latin music. And he knew he had to leave Garfunkel if he was going to maximize his potential as an artist. And look where he went. I mean, me and Julio, Graceland... Uh, that those songs are, uh, 
were not Simon and Garfunkel songs. And if he had limited himself to Simon and Garfunkel, I think he would have been burned out by the end of the 70s. You examine the relationship with Garfunkel that goes back to the, I think, sixth grade when they first encountered each other in a school play, one in which Garfunkel didn't even sing, and and Paul had the lead. Um, But it's been a remarkable relationship, like anybody who'd been friends with someone for all those years. When they reunited in 03, you talked about the genuine affection that was there, but now they haven't spoken in a while. Does, Does Paul Simon understand the public's desire to see them get along and perform together? Oh, yes, he does. And he, you know, they're, they're further apart now, Rich, than they ever were in terms of working together or friendship or all that. Just total separation. But Paul spent some nights talking about how wonderful it was back in those days and how much fun they had. And he'll say nice things about what art contributed to this record or not. So there's one side of him that, that it's almost like brothers in a way. It's one side mm. that really is, has affection for art, but there's the other side that knows creatively they just can't coexist. And I, I love the the story that he told about the, the two of them sitting in a car and hearing their music on the radio for the first time. <laughs> yeah, that's, it's like they had the number one record in the country. They were sitting in a car somewhere in Queens, and, and Paul or Art says, boy, I much, bet you they're having a lot of fun tonight. <laughs> and they just didn't know what to do. They were just overwhelmed by all this success because Paul had been working for so long to have a hit record. And the thing about, uh, thing is, was one of the most fascinating things to me, I guess, is that Paul, Paul was not a natural-born songwriter. You think anybody who writes all these songs had to be playing the piano at three and writing lyrics at six and stuff. But he, he, after the breakup of hey, uh, Tom and Jerry, which made that record Hey Schoolgirl, which was a copy of an Everly Brothers song, he spent five years in recording studios, writing songs, trying to get a hit record, and, he, it, and none of it was any good. You know, it's just amazing. He learned a lot about recording. He learned a lot about the record business, but the songwriting was terrible because he was just copying teen pop songs on the radio until he heard folk music and Dylan. That changed him. He wanted to write deeper songs. And when he and, and he had broken up with Garfunkel after Tom and Jerry, so when he went to Columbia Records, this was fascinating to me, he didn't go to get a contract for Simon and Garfunkel. He was going after a Paul Simon solo contract. And Tom Wilson, the record producer, said, no, I'm sorry, son, we already have Bob Dylan. We already have a singer-songwriter. But if you know a group, it might work. And so he says, oh, I remember there's a friend of mine who I used to sing with. Let me bring him in. And that was the start of Simon and Garfunkel. I thought it was very interesting, too, Bob. You, you talked with Kathy Chitty, as we mentioned. You spoke with the late Carrie Fisher. Uh, you talked with Simon's first wife. And none of them really had a negative word to say about him. So that's right. You know, that's that's one of the really interesting things, and it was kind of a hard thing to deal with in the book because you don't want to look like you're you're taking Paul's side and and and, and fawning over it. You know, it's not like his book. It's you know, it's a book about his life. Uh, but and and he had a reputation in the '60s and '70s for being kind of a prickly guy. Uh, even when he first meets his first wife, she says to him, I heard you weren't a very nice guy, because he was always fighting so hard to defend his music against record companies, anybody who wanted to change it. He had a vision, and also he worried that he was so short. He didn't think people took people short people seriously, that they would uh, override him. So he, became, he got a, a pretty belligerent attitude. But, uh, but again, that started changing after Graceland. Graceland gave him so much confidence that that made him a warmer person. He was uh, uh, easier to deal with. But but dealing with that early prickly image, 
uh, was a difficult thing. But almost everybody I talked to, whether it was musicians, uh, family members, there was it was it, you know Paul Simon is a good guy. He is a, is a good guy. Now there are people who don't like him because they met him during the sixties and seventies, and they thought he was. Uh, Blunt. He was rude. He was indifferent. But you know, you talk to Dylan, Neil Young, any of those guys. If you get them when they're working on their music, they're not going to be the best of friends. And he bounced back uh, first of all from the uh, the disappointment of One Trick Pony to the Cape Man, his uh, run at Broadway, and he's been able to persevere through that. How important has his marriage to Edie Brickell been to to settle him down uh, to accept? I, I, I guess I would say to accept himself. Yeah, that's very important. I mean, you, you're really picking up, Richard, some good things in the book, the things that I really think are important for people to know about Paul. Edie was a miracle for him, according to all the people I talked to. She didn't talk to me because she and Paul had a rule that their personal life was private. They were never going to open the door for People Magazine to come in and take pictures of the family to promote an album. They saw how fame can destroy people, relationships and stuff. So I had to talk to other people about Edie. Uh, you know, friends, Lauren Michael, Steve Martin, uh, Bobby's, I mean, Paul's uh, brother, Paul's best friend from grade school. And they all talk about how Edie brought something into his life, kind of almost common sense. She says, Paul, don't worry about that so much. Think of this. Don't worry about that. Think of your blessings and stuff. And she made him lose some of that anger, or he, he rejects the word anger, but let's say apprehension that he carried for so many years. Do you think at this point in his life, as he wraps up this farewell tour, that Paul Simon is at peace? Is it what? Is is he at peace with himself? Oh, yes, yes. I saw the show. He just played Los Angeles. And the music was what it always is. You know, he spends two hours a day every on every show at a sound check, changing bits of the music, never satisfied, always keeps changing. So that, the music was was excellent as I thought it would be, but he was so warm on stage. He In the past, he's been something of a stiff performer, kind of stands there, doesn't talk a lot to the audience. This time he was talking about a song, how he wrote it, he was telling a joke. He was just just a look in his face. You know, he he's at, he's at peace with himself. He's looking forward to the future. He's he, He's got a lot of gratitude. Well, I, I saw him uh, on the Rhythm of the Saints tour. I saw him again when he was touring with Brian Wilson several years ago, and I'm hoping to get to Boston and see him on the Farewell Tour on, on June 24th. A remarkable artist and a really remarkable book. Uh, Bob Hilburn, a, a fantastic job in telling the story, and, and for the first time really telling the story of the creation of this tremendous music. Yeah, thanks very much, and I hope you get, do get to see him in Boston because it'll be a different Paul Simon than you've ever seen before. You just re, your heart will be warmed, not to be corny, but the fact that he come through all of this struggle, all the song, the boxer, all the struggle he had as a young man trying to get in the music business, trying to write meaningful songs, and getting rejected, and he's come through all of that, and he's he you, you can feel for him. You, you know, you really do say that's really nice. That somebody can kind of win on his own terms. Well, it's a wonderful book. And Bob, by the way, I loved the Johnny Cash book as well. It's a real treat for us to talk with you today. Yeah, thanks very much. Robert Hilburn, author of Paul Simon, The Life, here on Downtown, the podcast. When we return in just a moment, we'll talk with the man who brings Fenway Park to life musically, organist Josh Cantor. But first, 
A word from our friends at Cross Insurance. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. You know, five years ago, two friends teamed up to create balanced beers that pay respect to the rich German tradition of brewing, layered with all the nuance and eccentricity of modern brewing. And with that, Nice Brewing Company was born. Based in Limerick, Maine, in the foothills of the White Mountains, Dustin and Tim combine their love of beer, science, and their German heritage for truly unique brews. Whether it's the Nice Weiss, the Sun and Shine, IPAs, Stouts, Porters, or any of their seasonal favorites, you'll love what they've got brewing at Nice. Be sure and ask for beers from Nice, G-N-E-I-S-S, at your favorite restaurant or bar. Visit the Tasting Room in Limerick, open Fridays 2 to 7, Saturdays 12 to 6, and of course visit the website at nicebeer.com to learn more. Work hard, play hard, be nice. Here we go. Well, that, of course, is Josh Cantor, the longtime organist at Fenway Park. And, oh, sure, Josh tra- plays the traditional favorites, like take me out to the ball game. But he has uh, expanded the role of ballpark organist in uh, many exciting ways. Over the more than 15 years at the helm, we had a chance to talk with Josh about the job. And we bring it your way right now on Downtown, the podcast. Was I right? 16th season? Yeah, this is the 16th. So they, uh, I guess they just kind of add up after a while, you know? <laughs> well, it goes by quickly, especially uh, if you're enjoying the work and, and you obviously seem to do that. Uh, what drew you to this particular job? Um, well, I mean, ever since I was a little kid, I was a, a, a piano student and I was really enthusiastic about it. And I was a big baseball fan also. Um, so it's kind of just on the surface there. It's a great match, I think. Um Probably around the time I was 12 or 13, I realized that I wasn't good enough at playing baseball to, you know, to have a career in baseball on, on that side of things. But around that same time, I sort of um, got attuned to live organ music at ball games and was really drawn to it even from that um, relatively early age. And I remember thinking as a teenager, like, man, that must just be the, the coolest job in the world. And then, you know, not thinking anything would ever come of that, but, as you know, as the years went on, I was playing a lot of music in a lot of different settings, and it was all sort of, um, in some way or other, kind of, you know, preparing me um, to be to be ready and qualified to do that, and then the timing was just very fortuitous that there was a vacancy and a set of auditions, and I was in the right place at the right time. And I understand it was a pretty interesting audition that they uh, threw a lot of different styles and genres at you to play. Uh, yeah, it was. You know, it's been a long time now, so I don't really. I'm a little fuzzy on all those details, but I remember that it was. Um, uh, it was part of it was just kind of a pop quiz on like how many different genres and styles and eras of popular music I could um, convey uh, at the organ, so they would just kind of. Uh, the people who are auditioning me to just sort of name some of these different styles and, and ask me to play, you know, representative samples of them. And uh, that was something that um, 
I don't know. I was I was pretty well versed in that, having um, just played in a lot of uh, different musical groups uh, that had done that. You know, some of those different styles of playing. Now, your song list is absolutely fantastic. When you began the job, I'm old enough to have grown up listening to John Kiley, the legendary organist at Fenway, will always be in his debt for playing the Hallelujah Chorus after Carlton Fisk's home run in 75. But you have such an eclectic song list. Was there any guidance from the team, from ownership, or were you left to your own devices to create the, the wonderful type of music that you bring every night? Um, well, thank you, first of all, for those kind words. Um, I think uh, largely it was left up to me to decide um, what to play. And I, But I had been a, a long-time sort of student and admirer of Kylie, who was with the Red Sox for 37 years and also did the Bruins and Celtics games for many decades. Uh, and I also studied um, recordings and um, newspaper accounts of other longtime organists at other old ballparks and had, you know, just tried to pick up and, and learn about the history and what, what their styles had been and what their approach was. And um, eventually, over time, uh, you know, so I started just kind of trying to emulate some of what I thought were the best elements of those things. Uh, and then as time went on, I kind of developed um, a bit of my own style and... Um, the thing that really uh, changed things pretty dramatically was about seven years ago, um, I started soliciting requests um, on social <laughs> media from fans at the games so they could just, you know, just tweet me a message and say, I'd love to hear this song, or I would love to hear this song. And it also created a feedback mechanism where people could respond immediately to tell me what they liked or what they didn't <laughs> like, which was something that had kind of been lacking um, prior to that, but that really uh, opened my eyes in a lot of ways to, um, you know, to what people wanted to hear. And I think in that job, it's it's all about, you know, it's not about what it's not necessarily about the music that I like because I can play the music that I like on my own time. But when I'm there and people are, you know, paying good money to come to the games and and have the music be part of the entertainment of that, um, it's an opportunity to play what other people want to hear and learn a lot of songs that I never would have otherwise known about or thought of. Um, and uh, because of um, sort of, um, you know, ear training that I had had uh, as a musician prior to that, and now from doing it so frequently and so regularly at the ball games, um, I've actually, I mean, not to be immodest, but I've gotten pretty good at being able to, like, listen to a song once or twice and then, um, you know, replicate a version of it on the organ and, and play it out live to the stadium. Uh, Josh, Don Cookson here. Uh, now, your uh, your musical outlet there at the ballpark, certainly not your only opportunity to perform. I understand uh, you're the member uh, of a couple of different bands. Um, yeah, I play with a, uh, a few different bands, um, you know, some, uh, well, I guess several different bands, really, you know, just sort of whoever calls whoever if it's people i like and songs that i like then i, I like to collaborate in that setting with, with there's some groups that i have a sort of a more um uh, official and regular uh affiliation with there's uh, one in particular that's called the baseball project and it's a group that writes uh original songs that are all about baseball and i kind of got 
pulled into that group because I knew a couple of the people in it, and I guess I had these, you know, baseball bona fides, and they were looking for uh, some help in the form of a keyboard player. Um, so that worked out nicely. That happens to be a group of people, uh, other musicians who are all very accomplished in terms of having, uh, you know, performed and recorded all over the world and have, you know, played on hit records and all this kind of thing. So it's been that's been a great um, sort of education for me to play with such, uh, you know, seasoned professionals. Well, we love the baseball project. I told you uh, in an online conversation, we had Scott McCoy on uh, a couple of years ago and, and glad to hear that he's doing well in his recovery from a stroke. Uh, yes, yeah, Scott suffered a stroke about six months ago. Uh, he is coming along in his recovery, and uh, you know we're all pleased for that because he's um, uh, just a wonderful person, one of the most wonderful people I've ever known, and um, much beloved in, in many musical circles. So we're all... Um, excited and pleased that he's, you know, on the road to recovery and, and just now beginning to, to get out and play again a little bit. We're talking with Josh Cantor, the organist at Fenway Park, who Sean McAdam called earlier in our show, the hippest organist in all of baseball. So high praise there. It's also fun to watch the reactions that you get, and I've seen a number of the posts on social media, from musicians and songwriters that either hear or hear about you playing their songs at Fenway. Um, yeah, that's been kind of a fun and unanticipated uh, part of what has happened from you know putting myself out there on social media in recent years. Um, is that a lot of times, um, you know, maybe someone is a fan of a particular band or songwriter, and they'll request that I play the song, and I'll play the song, and then that fan will in turn you know notify the band via social media, or maybe it doesn't even come in the form of a request. You know, it's it's just a song that I've decided to play, or that someone else has requested. And then, you know, there's so many people there, and if somebody, you know, picks up on it and says, oh, this is really cool, I'm just going to send a tweet to whoever, you know, some, some, you know, some musician of renown, and then that person, you know, might see it and respond and say, hey, that's cool. I mean, sometimes they don't care. They're like, yeah, fine, whatever. <laughs> uh, other times they, they reply and they say, oh, that's really great. I, that, you know, I really appreciate that. It's nice to be, um, I think it's sort of a unique way to, um you know, to express uh, appreciation for a song is to um, perform it at a baseball game as an organ instrumental. Now, you also have a, a day job that people uh, might not expect from you. You work at Harvard as a reference librarian. Uh, yeah, I've been uh, working in the libraries at Harvard for, oh gosh, about 20 years now. Um, that was something, you know, I mentioned earlier about doing all this research into the history of, of uh, ballpark organ music, and that was something that my you know, my library skills and the resources at Harvard allowed me to to do that pretty thoroughly. But for the last um, several years, I've been working in the library at the music department, and um, I enjoy it very much. It's a, it's a good day job, you know, in terms of um, being surrounded by interesting musical materials and scholars who are coming in to look at those materials and study them, and I just help them find what they're looking for, and it's... Uh, it's it's very stimulating for me. And you mentioned uh, getting requests uh, in mid-game from fans through social media, but uh, did you get some preparation for that? I, I happen to see that you did some improv work in college, and I, I have an improv group around here, and uh, I'll, I'll tell you, a keyboard player is such an essential part of that, and, and you become very much an improviser yourself when you're doing that. Um, yes, I, and uh, so I played uh, piano, uh, accompaniment for three years in college um, for an improvisational theater group, and then I did it for a few years 
um, with uh, after college with a, a group in Boston of just some some improvisers that I knew around town. Um, I enjoyed that very much, and I would say of of everything I've done musically, that was the the thing that prepared me best for um, for playing at Fenway because it's it's very similar in in a certain way because you're you're watching action on the stage and you don't know what's going to happen next and you have to be prepared with some sort of musical idea that kind of underscores uh, the action or maybe um, moves the action forward or, or, or supports it in some way. Um, and our DJ at Fenway Park, TJ Conley, plays all the recorded music um, the last several years, and he's also the DJ for the uh, New England Patriots. He, uh, he comes from a similar background where he had done that sort of thing in a DJ capacity for improvisational theater. So it's we have this terrific uh, working relationship, I think, because of that shared background. We have a really good, uh, we have some really good shorthand when we're talking to each other over the headset during the game and giving each other cues and suggestions and feedback and when to go and when to stop and, and bouncing ideas off of each other and building ideas off of each other, off of what each of us is playing. Um, so that, uh, you know, that, that chapter of my, you know, improv experience has has really informed um, my approach to the to the ball games in a, in a in a big way. Josh, do you get stumped very often by fans when they throw out requests? Um, very rarely. You know, not too often anymore. Every once in a while, someone will ask for. Uh, it's it's pretty rare. Maybe a couple times a year, somebody will ask for some uh, very complicated. Um, elaborate classical piece, and I just know, like, I'm not going to play it. I don't have <laughs> the chops for it. I don't have the, uh, I don't have much uh, sheet music reading ability. Um, I did as a kid, but I just haven't really stayed very sharp with that skill um, in terms of sight reading and being able to, to play on the spot. I really play much better by by ear and by memory. So, you know, I will just sort of politely decline when, when a request of that nature comes along. I mean, I also tried to keep the interaction on social media very um, uh, light and whimsical, mm-hmm. and so, uh, you know, I often um, tease people a little bit for their for their taste, you know, <laughs> for their musical selections, but, uh, but I'll also, you know, tease myself for my own taste far more, so I feel like it's it's kind of fair game in a way. I sometimes tell people like this is the toll that you pay for for having your request played. Is I'm allowed to <laughs> to make fun of the song, but I will do my best to play the best possible version of it that I can. Josh, you mentioned the a, a, a classical request being the sort of thing that might uh, might throw you a bit of a curve. You had an opportunity to play in a venue uh, very well suited to classical music. Uh, I understand uh, following the the '04 championship. You, you actually had a performance at Boston Symphony Hall. Uh, I did, and and in fact, I um, I played at Symphony Hall three times over the years, uh, which is uh, an uh, it's such an honor. I mean, I can't even put into words what it means to um, to be invited to to play the organ at, at Symphony Hall in Boston. Um, it's it's an extraordinary honor. Uh, the first time was in two thousand four, and we had booked it. Uh, a year in advance as part of an organ festival that they were having to celebrate the restoration, uh, the, the, the lengthy uh, restoration process of the organ that they have in there, which has, 
I forget the exact number. I think it's over 5,000 pipes in this pipe organ. And wow. it took me on a tour behind the scenes where you're like jumping around from, you know, back in the behind the wall, uh, looking at all the pipes and everything. It's kind of crazy. But um, and it's a pretty intimidating instrument uh, to play. And there were some organists on the program who were, you know, some real like world class heavy hitters. And so I was a bit intimidated just kind of, you know, talking to them backstage and, and swapping stories and all that sort of thing, but but very memorable and very fun, and I learned a lot. But the thing is that it was, uh, the program was put together like a year in advance, so none of us knew that just coincidentally it was going to take place two weeks after Red Sox <laughs> won the World Series for the first time in 86 years. Of course, <laughs> people, you know, will remember the incredibly dramatic fashion in which they won those playoff games and won that series, and uh, and that was my second season with the team, uh, so I was still, you know, sort of new there, and uh, it just was astonishing. I mean, it was a it was a time where you could go anywhere in New England, uh, you know, for several weeks after that World Series, and just if you you know people would see each other wearing Red Sox hats, and strangers would just hug and high five and cheer <laughs> on the streets and that kind of thing. Uh, so when it came time for them to to introduce me to come out on stage, there was this you know, uproarious standing <laughs> ovation that had nothing to do with me. It really just had to do with the team having had this sort of great historic success. But it was fun to be kind of swept up in the middle of that in the moment. Now, you've played over 1,200 games uh, through the years, so I assume you've you've played uh, just about everything you've wanted to play along the way. But is there a song, is there is there one song perhaps that you're you're waiting for just the right moment to play? Oh, gosh, I don't know. Um... No, I, I mean nothing that comes to mind. But the the, the amazing part about it is that, um, you know, sometimes someone will request a song, and uh, and you realize, you know, you think to yourself, "My gosh, I totally love that song. I can't believe that I've never played it before, or I have no recollection of having played it before." I mean, that's the thing with that many games and that many years. You know, some of it does start to blur together, and sometimes you don't remember something. But you know, maybe a fan who comes infrequently someone who maybe comes once a year or once every few years will will remind you i've had people you know come up to me and say oh i remember this game six years ago and you played this song and this <laughs> perfect thing and and i'm like i don't remember that at all but i'm glad that you do i'm glad you appreciate it that you have the memory of it it means a lot to me that i that i you know did something right <laughs> in that moment um so i think you know i have just learned that those kinds of wonderful moments will happen if you open yourself up to the possibility of it, and I fully expect that people will continue to send me requests, or I'll just, you know, I'm, I'll just overhear a song on the radio, or I'm just, you know, reading an article about the music, and it and it conjures, you know, a reference or a memory to a certain song, and I'm like, oh, man, i I got to do that. And a lot of times it's um, it can be sort of uh, situational in a way. It's not just the song itself but it's the song in the particular moment like i think this year um for example on opening day we had um ruth pointer the lead singer from the pointer sisters right. came and she sang the national anthem and she is uh i've always loved the pointer sisters i've been a huge fan since i was a little kid um and uh and right after she sang the national anthem there was this sort of moment in the uh in the pregame ceremony where i was designated to play a song i think while they were getting the next 
group of, you know, special opening day dignitaries ready to be recognized on the field or something. And I, I played an old Pointer Sisters record, this song, He's So Shy, which was like one of the first 45s I had bought, you know, when <laughs> I was seven years old or something. And I remember, you know, roller skating to that song at the local rink and just really uh, always liking that song. But I, as far as I can recall, I had never played it before. Um, but it was an honor to sort of play it in that moment. And I didn't know whether she would even notice or not, but I got word through um, uh, through a mutual acquaintance um, that she had heard it and she appreciated it, and that was sort of very special to me. Um, or like uh, just last week, it was a similar thing where the, the, the Oak Ridge boys were in town on a tour and they came out and sang the national anthem before the game. And, and you and threw I a played. little Elvira at them, right? Yeah, I played Elvira like on when they were on the field shortly before they sang, and that was another one that was like, just a song I loved as a kid. As far as I can remember, I had never played it before, but sometimes those, for me, there's just, those songs are just burned into my brain, uh, you know, from that time when I was just sort of consuming um, popular radio music so vociferously. And um, and I played it, and, you know, next thing I know, you know, I'm on the headset communicating with the people who are running sort of all the audio-video elements of the of the presentation in the ballpark, and somebody says, um, Josh, I'm down here on the field with Oak Ridge Boys, and they just wanted me to tell you that they really loved that, and they'd love to, you know, come up and say hello and thank you. And I was like, oh my god, it'd be incredible. And sure enough, after they sang, they stopped by and and chatted, and we took a photo, and it was uh, it was a you know it was a cool moment for me. It was definitely something that you know, if you had told me when I was a little kid that someday, that decades later, something like that was going to happen, I wouldn't have, I never would have believed it. But uh, so I think there are. You know, things like that sometimes that um, just somehow happen when you're, you know, paying attention to the surroundings and being responsive to what's happening and to what people are asking you to hear. And, and a lot of that is, is what comes from the um, that training ground of having done the improvisational theater is just, like, maintaining the, uh, the awareness and being able to anticipate things and then... Uh, and letting, you know, cool, fun things come out of it as a result. <laughs> well, that's one of the things you do so very well. You've always got the right song for the right time. Josh, uh, it's been a real treat for us to talk to you this afternoon. Uh, keep up the great work. We're, we're big, big fans here. We hope to catch up with you again sometime down the road. Thank you so much, gentlemen. I really appreciate it. Fenway Park organist Josh Cantor here on Downtown, the podcast. And that'll wrap it up for this week. Thanks so much to uh, you for joining us. Spread the word. Subscribe to the podcast. Tell your friends. For goodness sakes, let the world know. Uh, we're also pleased to thank our sponsors, Cross Insurance, where security meets strength, and Nice Brewing Company, German-style beer from the woods of Maine. Terry Haskell, this is Rich Kimball. We'll see you next time. Downtown, the podcast.